It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Wisconsin's state budget passed earlier this year settled a lot of questions for Wisconsin schools. And a follow-up bill on revenue sharing expanded funding for the state's voucher programs. But that wasn't the end of the story for school issues in the state legislature this year. There's a lot of education action for state lawmakers going on this month, including a series of bipartisan bills that would allow the lowest spending school districts in the state to increase their revenue-raising power, a requirement for Hmong and Asian American studies in Wisconsin schools, and already passed, Wisconsin schools will officially change the way reading is taught to emphasize phonics more. Legislation that's less likely to end up becoming law includes a Republican bill on gender, sexual orientation, race, and other issues in the classroom, and a Democratic proposal to phase out school vouchers. We're rounding up some of those proposals now. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a K-12 student in Wisconsin's public or voucher-supported private schools? What are your thoughts on some of this legislation? Do you have questions about what's going on? Are there changes you'd like to see in the way schools are run or funded in the state? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at wpr.org. Rory Linane writes about K-12 education for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Rory, welcome back to Central Time. Hi, thank you for having me on. Well, a lot going on. You wrote a roundup of uh, some of the big news there. Let's start with some of the, the bipartisan ideas, or at least ideas with some bipartisan support. I guess some of the least controversial things, no surprise. What are you looking at that seems likely to pass and then be signed into law by Governor Evers? Yeah, um, there's one initiative that's that's moving quickly through the legislature with um, some bipartisan support, and that's around getting some more funding for some of the school districts in Wisconsin that have been um, recently getting the least amount of funding. Um, and so this one's kind of complicated, but um, it goes back to 1993 when state lawmakers decided to lock school districts in at the amount of funding that they happen to be spending at that time. And so that put school districts in, at, you know, into a lot of different scenarios um, where you saw some schools being able to spend a lot of money and others not so much. And, you know, one of the main ways around that was for a school district and still is, is for a school district to hold a referendum to go to their voters and ask for permission to raise taxes. Um, and then another thing to understand is that um, because districts were locked in at these really different levels, um, lawmakers also set a minimum funding level, um, like a floor to make sure that, you know, districts were at least not below that. Um, and then in this past budget, lawmakers decided to bump up that floor to 11000 per student. Um, but there were 19 school districts um, who were below that floor but didn't qualify for that increase because of another state law that says if a school district has failed a referendum, then it can't take advantage of any increases to that floor for three years. Um, so there were 19 school districts in that situation where they, they had the lowest amount of funding, but they had failed a referendum. And so they were going to have to stay at a really low um, funding level. But the bill on the table would um, get rid of that uh, law and then allow those districts to take advantage of that increase. Now, there are some other smaller things. They don't seem like uh, huge pieces of the puzzle here, but uh, some low-income families could get grants for driver's education. Uh, what's uh, what's yeah. going on there? Yeah, um, well, you know, especially with the reckless driving issue in Milwaukee getting a lot of attention, um, this is one area people have looked to as a, a 
potential um, piece of the solution is making sure that everyone can afford to get that driver's education. Um, so the this bill would put about $6 million toward that and it would give grants of $400 each for um, up to 15,000 uh, lower income students to be able to afford uh, those driver's education programs. I also mentioned a bill uh, passed already in the assembly, I believe, that would require uh, Hmong and Asian American studies in Wisconsin schools, similar to requirements, I think, uh, for other uh, uh, ethnic origin groups uh, in the state. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, there there is already current law that requires students to get educated about certain populations. Um, they're listed as American Indians, Black Americans, and Hispanics. And so this law would uh, broaden that to also specifically include Hmong and Asian American populations. We are talking to Roy Lenane from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, looking at a whole passel of legislation related to Wisconsin schools now uh, in various stages in the state legislature. You can join in with your questions or thoughts at 800-642-1234. I mentioned voucher schools earlier, Roy. uh, There's... Uh, an effort from some Democrats to try to phase out vouchers this after a negotiated deal on the revenue sharing in the state that boosted uh, voucher funding for the state's voucher programs. What's the latest there? Um, yeah, so in the in the latest state budget, uh, there there was a major boost to the amount of funding that private schools can get for each voucher. Um, and Democrats, um, you know, I think they've they've tried this before without uh, luck, of course. But uh, their proposal is to phase out that program because they argue that that pulls money away from the public school system, um, and that is not you know likely to go anywhere this session because of the Republican majorities. On the Republican side of things, we've seen a a series of bills in states around the country that uh, loosely call themselves parents' bills of rights, parental bills of rights, that sort of thing, related to uh, content that sponsors say is controversial in classrooms. This looks different uh, from state to state. What are we seeing Republicans propose here in Wisconsin? Yeah, so we do have um, our own version of a parental bill of rights being proposed by Republicans here. Um, and I guess a couple of the major um, kind of flashpoints in that bill, one one is that it would uh, require school staff to get parental permission in order to use um, trans students' pronouns. Um, and then another one is that it would allow parents to opt their students out of uh, quote-unquote controversial classroom discussions. And um, they specifically note that that could include topics such as gender, sexual orientation, race, structural racism, and institutional racism. Um, and uh, Democrats have uh, vo- voiced strong opposition to that one. Um, and so with uh, Governor Tony Evers in the office, um, it's it's not likely that that bill would, would make it through either. And it did get vetoed in the last session as well. A similar version of it did. And then back on the uh, Democratic side of proposals, a minimum teacher salary, uh, I guess, uh, pointedly equivalent to what lawmakers themselves get paid. Uh, Again, Mm -hmm. Democrats in the minority not likely to go far. What are they calling for? Yeah, um, uh, they have a whole package of bills um, to address the teaching profession. And uh, as you said, one of those would set the minimum salary equal to lawmakers, which is currently about $57,000. It would also set a minimum wage for student teachers and um, put some funding toward uh, helping students be able to pay for school to become teachers and 
I think we lost Rory there for a moment. Working to get her back. Uh, we are talking about education issues in Wisconsin State Legislature. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts on the various issues. We're talking about a lot, a surprising amount related to education, given that there was a lot that went on earlier this year. You can join the program at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up in just a moment or two here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're talking about current K-12 education issues in Wisconsin's legislature. You can join in at 800-642-1234. We've got Rory Lenane back uh, with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And Rory, just one more question I wanted to bring up before we let you go. Uh, a lawsuit uh, filed by a, 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 a brewery owner in northern Wisconsin trying to end the state's voucher school program. What's going on? Yeah, that's right. Um, the Minocqua Brewing Company has its own um, political action committee now. The owner there, uh, Kirk Bankstad, uh, he's a former Democratic candidate for the U.S. House State Assembly um, and has really um, pivoted to uh, a political focus with his brewery and uh, political political action committee. And so they have uh, been asked the state Supreme Court to directly take up their case where they are arguing that the voucher programs violate the state's constitution um, and specifically the part that uh, declares that public funds should be spent for public purposes. So they're arguing that um, the state funds in these programs don't have the same kind of uh, public oversight. All right, Rory, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad we got you back on. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's Rory Lenane with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Been talking about a lot of education issues in Wisconsin State Legislature. For more analysis now, Alan Borsick joins us, senior fellow in law and public policy at Marquette University Law School, longtime observer of schools here in Wisconsin. Alan, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. Let's start where we just left off there, Alan. Wisconsin School Vouchers Program. We had this uh, this deal reached uh, over the course of the budget process. Uh, Governor Evers negotiated with Republicans, bumped up voucher, uh, the per-student voucher funding for private schools in the state. I don't know. It looked like there might be a truce. We were done arguing about this for a while. Uh, no, not so much. It looks like there's this lawsuit. Democrats and the legislature still working on this. This debate is not over yet. That's for sure. You know, the the, the partisanship, the debate, the, the acrimony, the turf wars, the sector wars over vouchers have been going on since, uh, well, for sure, since 1998 when the Supreme Court allowed religious schools in, but really before that. So it's it's like the longest standing debate this side of abortion in, in Wisconsin. Um and can you remind us of the expansion of vouchers? It started off uh, with advocates in Milwaukee. Uh, now we have multiple voucher programs. Remind us uh, where we are and how we got here. Well, in a couple broad strokes, uh, Milwaukee, uh, the, an, an alliance of, of Governor Tommy Thompson and uh, Ned Polly Williams, who was a state assembly person at that time from the central city and others, made Milwaukee the first place in the country to have an urban uh, school voucher program in which state money was used to pay for kids to go to, at that time, a small number of private schools that were not religious. But over time, the programs expanded greatly. Um, there are now, as you said, four 
voucher programs in Wisconsin, one for Milwaukee, one for Racine, one for the rest of the state, and one for special ed, special ed kids. And all told, um, I believe it's around 50,000 kids this year are going to school on vouchers, plus another 15 or 1,000 or so that are going to independently chartered uh, charter schools, which are a slightly different horse, but kind of similar. Um, and so that's about 65,000 kids, which is about 8% of the state's school population, if I got my math right. Um, so, the, yes, the program keeps going and growing. It's popular. Um, uh, voucher programs have grown around the country. Charter schools have grown around the country. But Milwaukee's claim to fame is that it was the first one of the claims or the arguments in this lawsuit, and I think from a Democratic sponsor of this bill looking to scale back voucher schools, is uh, there are different standards of transparency, of uh, performance evaluations, things like that, between these uh, voucher-supported private schools and public schools. Is that true? And if so, how big a discre- discrepancy is there? It's true, and the the... Schools that take voucher students are private schools. On the other hand, you can overstate that. The the schools have to have their, at least their voucher students, take the state's um, standardized tests, report the results publicly. They have to have a, a, a pretty fair amount of financial oversight. They have to be accredited. So they're not entirely outside of uh, 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 accountability, and and there's a lot that couldn't be found out about them. But it's not the same as if they had a public school board and all their meetings were open record, uh, subject to open records, open meetings laws. So they are a horse of a different kind. They can be religious in the case of the voucher programs, which public schools, of course, cannot. Mm-hmm. So there, there's still big differences, but it's easy to overstate that. All right. Now, that's the voucher issue. If I had to name, Alan, another uh, education argument that's been running for as long or longer and it gets just as heated, it's how we teach reading, uh, especially to young kids. Uh, and now you know, there's the phonics versus whole language, though a lot of people are, are in some kind of middle ground. We settled on something in Wisconsin. There's changes coming next year, bumping up the phonics side of things, as I understand it. Alan, what are we seeing in the works for next year? I think it's a really big deal. Uh, I have not been uh, shy about labeling Wisconsin's overall reading situation a crisis, especially for low-income and minority kids, but nonetheless up and down the spectrum. Um, About a quarter of all kids in the state, according to the results that were just posted last week from the testing done last spring, about a quarter of them test below the basic level in reading. And uh, there's been some recovery in the the overall performance of Wisconsin kids since uh, uh, the dip that occurred with the pandemic. But the scores are still below what they were 2019 and earlier. And if you're talking about low-income urban centers like Milwaukee or Beloit or uh, Green Bay in some areas, uh, other places, the, the... the level of the crisis is great. And this is true nationwide. There's been a lot of dissatisfaction with reading and that uh, there's just so many millions of kids who are just not capable readers. So Wisconsin joined now over 30 states in adopting laws and regulations related to shifting away from what's been called whole language or balanced literacy and emphasizing what's called the science of reading, which 
the best known aspect of that is an emphasis on phonics, which is sounding out uh, words letter by letter and sound by sound for each letter. Um, it's a big change. It's not going to be simple. It's not going to have quick results. Some of the provisions in it don't kick in for five years, but you're going to see different approaches to reading. A lot of what a lot of school districts have been using for reading curriculum is now literally against the law. It was the so-called three queuing system. Um, and you're going to see different uh, 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 training for teachers. You're going to see um, what's going to happen as far as the expectations that scores will improve. Um, it's a big deal in Wisconsin. It's a big deal nationally. And you mentioned this uh, will take some time to uh, roll in. How big a task is it for a school, a district, and a state full of districts to uh, make a big change in their curriculum like that over the course of uh, a, a year for some of the first changes and a little longer for the rest? Well, it's not just a matter of buying a bunch of new textbooks. It, it involves retraining your staff, uh, retraining uh, everyone who's involved in the school, really, to a different way of of uh, teaching kids to read and what's expected from them. The places that have done it well have had uh, really high-quality uh, training of their staff. They've had reading coaches who can uh, observe teachers in class and give them advice. They've, they've uh, spent quite a bit of money on, on developing the ways to do it. It's not cheap, and it's not quick. I mean, the reason kids are not good readers curriculum and and the way they're taught in class is a big factor and can have impact but it also has roots all over the place at home in the broader culture in uh, the history of uh, years of of not emphasizing reading and in, in, in a big way so so changing all this is um really formidable it's it's a, a giant you know to use the cliche it's a giant battleship and turning it around uh, uh, doesn't come easy. Talking to Alan Borsick with the, uh, he's a senior fellow in law and public policy at Marquette University Law School, looking at uh, education issues, excuse me, in Wisconsin's state legislature. Alan, I wanted to get your take now. We've seen, as I was talking to Rory about earlier, a lot of states tackle some version of a Republican bill that's often called a parental bill of rights. Uh, lawmakers, again, in Wisconsin are advancing something like that. Governor Evers vetoed a similar bill in the past. Uh, as you look at this, uh, what do you make of, of the politics of it versus the, the practical interest in what kids are seeing and learning in schools? Well, the, it's a tough subject because sure. who's opposed who's opposed to parents being involved and invested in the, the success of their kids in school? Everybody's in favor of that. But then what does it mean when it actually uh, hits, hits – uh, real life because you've got parents who are handling this role in a terrific way and you've got parents who are handling it in a way that's uh, uh, counterproductive, that's that's intrusive, <laughs> that interferes with teaching. You've got both. Um, so if you ask me, I wish everyone would sort of take a breath and, and really focus on what's good for kids and especially for their own kids. Um that said, I don't think anything is going to come out of the legislature, as Rory was saying. Uh, you know, you got this uh, gridlock there between uh, the governor and, and the Republican majority. So nothing much is going to happen as long as we have that situation. Where you're going to see action 
and you are seeing action is at local school mm-hmm. boards and in, in, in local communities and parents taking action, sometimes pulling their kids out of school, uh, schools uh, coming under pressure to, to change what's in their libraries, to change how they treat kids. Uh, a lot of this is taking place at the local level. And a lot of the strategizing by the people who are backing this is increasingly emphasizing the local level. Overall, if I was watching for where important education action is going to take place in the next few months in Wisconsin, I wouldn't look at the legislature or the governor's office. I would look at the state Supreme Court because that's who's going to handle this challenge, which is a very serious matter to the um, uh, voucher and charter programs. Or I'd look at local school boards because that's where a lot of that action is going to be. So the the real emphasis is moving away from the legislature and moving both locally and down the hall in the Capitol to the to the state Supreme Court. Are there particular districts you have your eyes on right now, Alan, where these issues are, are playing out? Well, the biggest action has been in uh, uh, suburban districts and, and uh, Republican-oriented districts as far as their voting patterns. So places like Menominee Falls, the King of the Milwaukee area, Menominee Falls, Waukesha, um, uh, uh, some other communities out in, in Waukesha County uh, have, have elected very conservative school boards in the last couple of years, boards that were uh, were the majority of candidates, and and they won fair and square in elections. I should add, there, there wasn't like some uh, you know mm-hmm. hijacking of the process, um, but where where there was a lot of cooperation uh, overtly between uh, Republican uh, activists and Republican Party and and Trump oriented people and and the people who were uh, running for the school board. So you have strong conservative majorities in, in a number of these school districts out in Waukesha County um, and uh, to some degree in Ozaukee and Washington counties and then elsewhere in the state. I, I... We'll leave it there. Thanks to Alan Borsak with Marquette University Law School. We also heard from Roy Lenane with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel looking at education issues going on in the legislature and beyond. This is Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. It's Food Friday. Say you're in the mood for some hearty soup for dinner tonight. You hop onto uh, Google or whatever search engine and type in potato soup recipe. Next, you're faced with a whopping 350 plus million search results. Now, of course, not all of those are actual recipes, but even if a million of them are or 100,000 or just 1,000, that's too many for you to wade through. Chances are you look at the first page of results. Google usually highlights about 15. Pick something based on a high user rating or if there's bacon in the picture. The soup could turn out pretty good or it could end up being kind of meh. You'll wonder why you didn't pick one of those other millions of results. Today on Food Friday, a food writer and recipe tester is letting us in on her secrets to finding the best recipes online and why it's so hard to do that sometimes. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are your tricks for finding great recipes online? Do you have a go-to food website or blog that you start with to look for recipes? What is the best? What's the worst recipe you've ever found online? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Peggy Paul Casella is a professional recipe tester and cookbook author and editor based in Philadelphia. She's the creator of the recipe website, ThursdayNightPizza.com. Peggy, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
Now, sometimes we assume when that uh, search engine puts some results on the top, well, they're going to be the best results, right? But uh, you know, and, and I think we all know that isn't always the case with recipes. Why does that happen? Mostly because of SEO and because of the way bloggers like me have to make a living. <laughs> so we kind of all have to go by this very specific rubric that is dictated mostly by Google. Um, and Google means well. The whole point is for Google to sort out which recipes are the best and which blog posts create content that actually will help the person who's looking for that content. But the problem is that within that SEO world, it becomes very formulaic and bloggers end up playing this endless game of like, you know, who can take the most beautiful photo. <laughs> now they can take a great photo, but can they really cook? Is that recipe really going to work? Um, so you'll find in the top five to 10 search results, a lot of times the photos look the same. <laughs> Sometimes the people look the same. The format of the blog posts are exactly the same a lot of the time. Uh, and that's why. The SEO search engine optimization. So and you wrote about this in Wired. Sometimes it's a, a mm -hmm. game of chase where Google wants it to look this way. Okay, so if I want to do a blog, I better make it look this way. And there's just this convergence that it all ends up looking kind of the same. Yeah, yeah. And so on the one hand, Google's done a great service by incentivizing bloggers and food content people to think a lot about the type of content they're putting out there and to, you know, work around this algorithm that we all depend on to get the ad revenue that we're all hoping for every month. Um, so on the one hand, I'm not totally anti Google here. I think uh, it does challenge people to create that content to, to take those process photos for a new recipe they're making and really uh, take a shot of the of the food that really shows the food, you know, and be mindful about the tips and tricks you're putting in your post. But I do think a lot of uh, content creators take all the shortcuts they can take just to pad those posts with keywords and things that they know Google wants without actually making the recipe, without actually testing the recipe. Okay, so we have found uh, that recipe online, or we're looking for a recipe for a particular dish. What do we do to glance at that recipe and say, okay, this looks like the real deal. This looks like kind of a half-baked uh, attempt to get that search engine optimization. How do, we, how do we evaluate a recipe to see, yeah, this one's the real deal? Okay, so I would say usually when I'm looking for a recipe, one of the first things I do is I hit that little button at the top of the recipe or atop of the blog post that says skip to recipe. I skip to the recipe and then I look at it. Does it have ratings? If so, I skim the comments a bit to see, okay, how mindful are these comments? Are these all people the person knows that have been like, you know, <laughs> mindlessly just giving them a five-star rating? Or are there comments from loyal cooks who come back to that recipe and take the time to write a paragraph about how it worked. And if that's the case, then you know it works. 
Um, so that's one way that you can absolutely tell. Another way is if you look at the photographs that the blogger or food content creator has put up, are there process shots? Because if there's process shots, at least you have a better chance of believing that that person actually made the recipe. Um, another way is in the recipe itself, are the steps specific? You know, one example I always bring up when I'm talking to other people in this world are, you know, onions drive me crazy. So if you're reading an article or I'm sorry, if you're reading a recipe mm -hmm. and you see someone has said one cup of onions, <laughs> you're like, wait a minute. That's one whole Hold onion. On. Sure. <laughs> right. Right. Do you cram a whole onion in a cup <laughs> measure? No, no one's ever going to know. No one's ever going to think that I know. But on the other hand, it just shows that the cook, the content creator, was not very mindful to give the reader, all right, well, okay, it's just chopped. Is it minced? Mm -hmm. Is it shredded? Is it sliced? You know, those are very different measurements. So that's the kind of thing I look for. Like, how mindful is the recipe? And also, do they have loyal test cooks who are writing comments about how it turned out or maybe how they tweaked it a little bit. Um, yeah, I think those are my main tips, at least. Talking to Peggy Paul Casella, professional recipe tester, cookbook author. She's the creator of the recipe website, ThursdayNightPizza.com. On this edition of Food Friday, she is helping us find good recipes on the Internet and figure out how to know what could be a good recipe. Want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Have you found uh, recipe websites that you go back to again and again because they work, they're reliable? Have you had food disasters based on cooking something off the Internet? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. So, Peggy, the recipe I've used the most that I found online is a, uh, a zucchini relish recipe. Zucchini uh, disposal is a big issue here. Uh, it <laughs> the re it's from, like, 2011. The website looks like it could have been made in the 1990s. I try to search for that recipe by name. It does not come up on search engines. I have to keep the link so I can keep finding the recipe if I want to share it with other people. Like, I don't know, sometimes those older ones were a labor of love. They weren't worried about bringing in the audience. Do you, do you have thoughts on finding those out-of-the-way, off-the-beaten-path recipes? I sure do. I sure do. I um, One of the things, there are a few recipes, right? When you're looking for a zucchini bread recipe, for instance, if you're me, right, and you grew up, eating mom's zucchini bread and you don't want a newfangled version you want the kind that you had when you were 12. um for those types of recipes i actually do i try not to go with one of the latest blogs or recipe websites out there i go searching i i call it spelunking through the internet i will search it three different ways I'll try and remember like what was one ingredient that was in there that might not be in these newer versions. Like, you know, I want a zucchini bread that uses vegetable oil, you know, mm -hmm. clutch your pearls, right? <laughs> um, I want, I want a zucchini recipe that uses cinnamon and vegetable oil. Now that search result will come up with yes, the typical results at the top. And some of those may be awesome, but if you're looking for more, an, you know, an older school, less frills, 
go like five pages into the search results and then look there and then keep looking or maybe even search something crazy like zucchini bread recipe like the Fanny Farmer cookbook. You know, something like that might draw up a more interesting result. We're going to get a link, by the way, to that very specific zucchini relish recipe at WPR.org slash Central Time if people want to make it at home, if you've got those uh, big zucchini left over. Uh, let's bring in a caller now at 800-642-1234. Carolyn is with us in Oconomowoc. Carolyn, hi. Hi. Uh, so my experience, I think I was following a recipe for maybe BuzzFeed. It was for... I want to say like ultimate chocolate chip cookies and they recommended using browned butter instead of regular butter. And in the recipe, it said, Oh, as you brown your butter, it's going to reduce in volume. So if you're not at quite two cups or whatever, once you brown the butter, just add a little bit of extra water into the measuring cup. And if you add cold water mm -hmm. to hot brown butter, yep. it will explode. <laughs> and it oh, is no. real hard to real hard to clean up all that butter. <laughs> Uh, you, so you're you're okay, recipe. I hope, Carolyn, right? You're fine? I'm okay. I'm fine, but that measuring cup has never looked the same. Wow. <sighs> Carolyn, thanks for that call. Yeah, that. Uh, are there red flags for you, Peggy, where this is clearly something untested because it just <laughs> defies the laws of physics? Totally. All the time. There are things, I can't think of an example right now, of course. I can't think of a good one, but... Mostly, I find it a lot in measurements, like I said, with the onions. I also find it a lot with times. Like, there have been a few times that I've had to laugh out loud where mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, someone writing a recipe for caramelizing onions, but they only are using half an onion, and they're using a giant Dutch oven. And if you just do some simple, critical thinking, you think, all right, well, if that surface area is only for this little bit of onion and you're saying to cook it for an hour. Well, those onions are not going to be good, honey. Carbonized, not caramelized, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's just one example um, that I think I'm mushing together a few different things I've seen, but yeah, it's just that kind of thing. And then a lot of times you'll find a recipe that clearly is not using enough liquid or sometimes too much liquid based on the type of pan they're asking for. I've had, I've seen a recipe for a gravy that was making enough gravy for like a Thanksgiving turkey for, you know, 20 people. And it said, make the gravy, take out your smallest saucepan. And I'm like, uh, I mean, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> A dot of gravy on each serving. We're talking to Peggy Paul Casella, professional recipe tester, cookbook author and editor, creator of the recipe website, ThursdayNightPizza.com. She's with us on Food Friday to let us in on the secrets of how to sift through thousands, millions of search results and find good, usable recipes online. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a go-to fantastic recipe that you found online? You can tell us about it. Maybe it was in an unexpected place on the Internet. How about a recipe that looked great in the photos but turned out to be a dud or, or exploded even? Tell us about it. Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. 
You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. It's Food Friday. We're picking up our talk with food writer and recipe tester Peggy Paul Casella about how to find good recipes on the Internet and how to figure out which ones are good and which ones are eh. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Is there a go-to recipe source online for you? What do you do when you're searching for, you know, I want to make blank or I have this ingredient. Do you have a method that gives you pretty good results? Do you have questions for our guest? Call 800-642-1234 with your questions or stories. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. James on Facebook says uh, Chef John's Food Wishes channel on YouTube is a great source for new recipes to try. I love his plus up take. On Frank and Beans, okay. Uh, YouTube videos, uh, Peggy. How useful do you find those uh, when it comes to recipes? I I tend not to like them unless it's a very specific technique. I just want to read the thing. Do you see a role for videos? I sure do. I think um, one as a content creator myself, who is chained to the Google algorithm. Um, I got into doing video because that was what was preferred. Um, and it was a recommendation brought to me a million times by a million different sources for growth. So I started doing video and I found at first I was hesitant. Then as I did it myself, I started looking on YouTube at what is out there more. And I gotta say, I mean, there are some videos where I think, man, you know, that didn't have to be a video. You could have just <laughs> written that down. Um, because I think, you know, I'm not one that just likes to put my face on a screen just to put my face on a screen, but other videos, I, as a recipe tester, there are a lot of times where I will be working. This just happened. I was editing, uh, an Italian cookbook and the author was trying to explain how to fillet anchovies, fresh anchovies. And I have never filleted a fresh anchovy myself. And so I was reading the description. I was confused by it in the book. And I thought, all right, I know what to do. I'm going to go to YouTube. I'm going to find someone who's filleting an anchovy. And then I'm going to help this author rewrite the description in a way that's more visual. Um, and it like those things I go to a lot. I found this adorable old, like, you know, she was probably like an 80 year old Italian grandmother filleting an anchovy. And it just, she did it so well on this video. And I just thought, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why YouTube is there for cooking. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'm the same. I love a written recipe, but I've really come around to the video recipe. I, you know, it, you mentioned cutting up an anchovy. I've used uh, YouTube for, you know, cutting up the best way to cut up a pineapple or whatever. That specific kind of technique thing, I totally get that. Now, I'm thinking uh, with your pizza website, an example comes to mind here. Uh, just the challenge of, okay, I know how to do this. How do I convey it to others? Uh, years ago, a friend of mine, an amazing cook, was talking me through making my own pizza dough. And, he, you know, it was like, knead it until it feels right was his instruction <laughs> to me. Uh, it did not come out well. How do you take that sort of like thing that you just know, right, and then figure out a way to tell me, Rob, uh, how to do it so I know what feels right means? You know, I just try and be as honest as possible. Um, I used to, to teach more pizza classes here in Philadelphia, and when I did that, I would get the best questions as I'm making the dough, and that really helped me understand 
what I understand may not be what someone else understands. So now when I'm doing a video, I try and do, you know, I try and make it really clear what step is what, and I try and like kind of slow down and show each thing at the different steps because, you know, I've made mistakes in the past where I've put up a recipe and not described it as well. And then I get a flourish of comments saying, this recipe doesn't work. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's to this or it's to that. And then I go back and read those comments. And at first, you know, I'm a little salty about it, but then I read them again. And then I realize, oh shoot, I should have explained that you need it until you press on it and it comes back a little bit or until or you need it with your hands like a cat kneading a sweater, you know? Um, so yeah, it's tough. It is tough, but I try and listen to the comments when they come in and I try and workshop it and I'll sometimes run a description by my sister or my husband or even my six-year-old son, you know? Like, would you understand this? <laughs> Let's go back to our callers at 800-642-1234. Gary is with us in Brookfield. Gary, hi. Hi, Rob. Thanks for taking my call. The one thought I had is you keep talking about using Google as a search engine. And 1A had a really good program on that a couple of weeks ago where they talked about how Google has changed over the last 15, 20 years. And, you know, perhaps using a different search engine such as DuckDuckGo would be beneficial. Oh, Gary, interesting point. Peggy, have you tried uh, comparing and contrasting uh, different search engines when searching for recipes online? That is a great point. Um, you know, Google is usually my standard go-to um, because they're the gold standard of how I make my living. You know, like I get ad revenue and a lot of that is based on the Google algorithm and, you know, how many people are clicking on ads through Google on my site. So that's why I favor that. But Yes, I have looked on Bing before to compare, especially when I was writing this article for Wired. Um, the search results are different. It's, in my experience, it wasn't as different as I expected it to be, but it is different. And that is another way to kind of expose other recipe websites that maybe you wouldn't find otherwise. All right. Thanks for that call, Gary. I just tried on DuckDuckGo looking for that zucchini relish. Again, not seeing the result, except <laughs> I've seen WPR.org from the last time we linked it, actually. Okay. Um, Peggy, uh, you were starting to touch on this earlier. Uh, for that focused search, uh, you gave an example in the Wired article about, uh, I think it was Spanakopita, like trying to find the recipe that's going to meet your needs best. Yeah, it's it's kind of how we have to do anything now, right? I mean, this, the world we're in, information is out there and that's great, but there's so much information that you really have to learn how to sort for it. I mean, I kind of, I draw a parallel between sitting down on a Friday night, trying to watch something on TV through the many different streaming services we have now. How do you pick a show to watch? It's kind of similar, you know? <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a mac and cheese recipe, this is a great example, actually. Mac and cheese is a fantastic idea. So if you, if you are looking for mac and cheese, right, we all know it's not that simple. Do you want a creamy stovetop mac and cheese, or are you more of a baked mac and cheese person that likes it a little more dry? 
I think if you can describe what you want from the result in your search mm. engine, then you're way more likely to end up with something that you're really looking for. We'll leave it there. Peggy, thanks again for joining us today. Been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. That's Peggy Paul Casella, professional recipe tester, cookbook author, and editor, creator of the recipe website, thursdaynightpizza.com. She joined us on Food Friday for a look at finding good recipes online. You could keep sharing your favorite sources for great online recipes or successes or failures, explosive or otherwise, over on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, get your finances in order as we head into the holiday season and a new year. A Wisconsin finance writer joins the show with some advice and some inspiration. That's Monday morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. Speaking of recipes, if you look for a grilled cheese sandwich recipe online, you'll find lots of options, but you might just wing it. But hold on. How about a grilled cheese sandwich that serves 750 people? As reported in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a pair of young YouTube users in Delavan are leading a community effort to set the Guinness record for the largest ever grilled cheese sandwich. The current record is held by somebody from Vermont. So that does need to be fixed. Yeah, they're aiming for 50 square feet of sandwich using 60 pounds of cheese. They're doing the cooking in Milwaukee tomorrow. You can watch history being made and grilled cheese being made starting at 11 a.m. at the Tripoli Shrine Center. Judging scheduled for noon. Then you can line up for a snack. You're never going to guess what that snack is. This is Central Time.